Hello and welcome to There's No Place Like, a podcast that explores place and our relationship to it. Brought to you by the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. The Port Kembla Steelworks loom large on the Illawarra landscape, a massive industrial complex employing thousands of people. So imagine their surprise when steelworkers saw a black marlin swimming in the creek that runs through the middle of the steelworks. We heard about this story in episode one of There's No Place Like. But in this talk, Michael Adams explores further the marginal environments of the Illawarra, which have become home or refuge to a range of human and non-human presences. What opportunities do these planned and managed land and seascapes provide for a surprising number of species? And how do we share these places with them? Michael Adams is Associate Professor in Human Geography at UOW. He writes about humans and nature in literary journals, academic journals and books. And his essay, Salt Blood, won the 2017 Calibre Essay Prize. He's speaking here as part of the Entanglement series, a joint lecture series by ACCESS, the Animal Studies Research Network at UOW and the Wollongong Art Gallery. Thanks, Leah. Um, just like Leah acknowledged country, and I'd just like to follow that up. I've lived here for 20-odd years, and Aboriginal people here and the land and the sea continue to teach me. Like, I've got a string of letters after my name, as Leah said, but I would really, at this point in my life, consider that my primary learning has been from Indigenous people, and I'm still making many mistakes in that, in that place and continuing to try and learn there. But when Joshua um, Lobb presented in the last of these series, he was talking about a book which has just his name as the author, but he talked about how nobody solely writes that kind of work. It's, it's many people contribute towards those things. And my colleagues in geography, obviously, many of my colleagues in uh, law, humanities and the arts, um, obviously the Indigenous people I've worked with have all contributed to making to, to helping my thinking in in the sorts of things that we that I'm going to talk about tonight and um Jetta Lemon where are you Jetta Jetta Nikoff so Jetta who was here actually you'll have to tell her was the key um trigger in some ways for what I'm going to talk about tonight she doesn't know that um and and all of you obviously um come, for coming tonight on a on a rainy night so thank you the shaky video shows the crescent tail cutting through the water as the black marlin swims through the creek, hunting Brim and Taylor. As the phone camera pans around, the built structures of the Port Kembla steelworks come into view, heavy trucks rolling over a concrete bridge, smokestacks and factories crowding the landscape. The roofs, pipes and conveyors are rust brown. Soot and grime coat the surfaces, sulfuric smells drift across the space. Steelworkers, the only people with access to that place, watch amazed as the black marlin hunts in the shallow waters of a creek inside the steelworks itself. The black marlin is an apex predator of oceanic environments, a wide-ranging ocean swimmer that can grow to 800 kilos. Marlins have a long, pointed, spear-like bill and a rigid dorsal fin that makes a crest along their back. Regarded as the premier game fish amongst anglers, they epitomise the oceanic wild, fast, powerful and beautiful. A close relative of the black marlin is the huge iconic fish at the centre of Hemingway's Nobel Prize winning book, The Old Man and the Sea. 
And the black marlin, like all animals, is part of a cosmos beyond and including humans, as American writer Henry Beston argued. It's a quote. In a world older and more complete than ours, they move finished and complete, gifted with the extension of senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear. The most polluted creek in this region, Allen's Creek, flows through the steelworks, its banks lined with concrete and weeds, its channel, its channel littered with plastic broken glass and rusting steel. Its waters and banks are a complex amalgam of industry, abandonment, toxicity, flourishing and decline. From the position of the dominant material logics of power and capital, these are the increasingly forgotten, ignored and avoided places. We know the marlin was there because a steelworker happened that day to see this marlin in the steelworks and filmed it. I found his footage while searching Google for, for information on local creeks. The black marlin was not lost, as some fishers mused. It was in the steelworks with intent and agency, likely following a faint heat trace in the water. The steelworks releases warm wastewater that is used in cooling processes back into the creek, supporting unique marine ecosystems in these warmer industrial estuaries. It's highly likely that this sighting was not a one-off event, that large predatory fish like the marlin now periodically hunt in the steelworks, unseen by human eyes, or if seen, unreported. These margins and ignored edges of industrial Illawarra, marine, freshwater and terrestrial, are home or refuge to a range of human and non-human presences, providing unique opportunities unavailable in the planned and managed land and seascapes surrounding them. The processes of rewilding leak across time and across tenures. The push of natural pulses, the push of natural forces pulsing more strongly as the industrial force of the steelworks declines. Five kilometres from and in sight of the towering flare stacks of the steelworks, a coastal rock shelf extends north from a local beach. This forgotten corner hosts an Aboriginal shell midden, maybe 8,000 years old. Geographer Patrick Nunn's remarkable book, The Edge of Memory, documents how at the end of the last ice age in, in southeast Australia, sea levels were rising rapidly, moving as much as 20 metres horizontally every year. You and saltwater Aboriginal people observed and responded to these changes watching their campsites and hunting grounds disappear underwater, seeing their fishing areas disappear, sorry, deepen and change. The descendants of those people continue to half, harvest from those waters today, still here because of their skill in responding to in, immense environmental and social change. The presence and agency of the black marlin in the middle of the steelworks brings into focus debates about the place of nature in the 21st century. The giant ocean fish swims into the heart of industrial Port Kembla, not because it's disoriented, but because the dirty ecologies of this human-transformed environment provide resources and shelter. The mostly ignored and unmanaged midden nearby holds the story of Yuan people's encounter here. Both the practicalities of negotiating cataclysmic sea level rise at the start of the Holocene and the inextricably linked locally embedded systems of relationships and respect between Ewan and all the other elements of this place, this country, are archived in the Midden. What if we take the presence of the Black Marlin a few kilometres from the ancient living Midden as a symbol of both new and ancient ways to learn? What do water and its denizens have to teach us? How do we learn from these places on the margin? 
What are the seen and unseen processes, processes of respect, reciprocity, responsibility, and also generosity and humility between the humans and the more than humans in these liminal spaces? In 2012, the extraordinary film Beasts of the Southern Wild was released. Nominated for four Academy Awards, the film is simultaneously speculative and deeply realistic. The film's imagined Louisiana community of the bathtub, lost in the interstices and flood zones of the modern American juggernaut, reflecting class and racial neglect, endures a Katrina-esque storm. But the bathtub, like Allen's Creek and Port Kembla, is not just an industrial wasteland. It is also full of life and energy. Both the humans and the non-humans living in these environments thrive or struggle with repurposed elements from previous and neighbouring ecologies and industries. The toxic dirt and debris of the steelworks waterway are the hidden byproducts of the glistening steel towers in modern cities. The marginalised workers fishing in these waters are increasingly discarded by the processes of capital and autom automation. Commenting on the film, the late feminist literary scholar Patricia Yeager argued, the film's rags and wastelands, its killing fields, become powerful emblems of the Southlands and our nation's commitment to toxic inequality. The citizens of the bathtub practice a dirty ecology, making do with what they can salvage from other waste-making classes. The redundant maintenance workers of Port Kembla, which in 30 years has lost 17,000 jobs in the steelworks, have similarly taken their skills into an invisible underground economy of community repair and maintenance. Geographer Chantel Carr says, they look at the world with the viewpoint that everything can be used for something else. Her work and others suggest that we, we need to invert vulnerability to find there instead capacity, endurance and resolve. In much of both popular and scientific discussion, there is an increasingly insistent environmental story of damage, extinction and decline. Simultaneously, environmentalists and conservation scientists are arguing for increased use of the standard Western tools of conservation. More protected areas or other conservation zones, threatened species recovery plans, management of feral species. There are increasingly range declines and extinctions of native species and simultaneously newly moved species are flourishing in environments all over the world. Western or modern conservation attempts to reverse both processes. We kill more feral animals and we attempt, we attempt to keep alive more declining species. So there are two great planetary trajectories of living and dying and specific modern humans attempt to reverse them both while actually also being the agents driving those trajectories. Canadian political ecologist Audra Mitchell describes this as, quote, managing life and death processes which leave the limited and bare forms of survival promoted by Western conservation strategies in which remnant populations live controlled existences in parks, reservations, zoos or petri dishes. Patricia Yeager, arguing the urgent need for a new vision of our relationship with the natural world, asserts... We must dirty ecology, the science of whole environments, with myths, fictions, half-truths, dirty imagery. Bringing together the mesh of what those two differing ideas offer might help us. I want to argue then that all environments are still whole environments, that the whole is constantly reassembled, reorganised from whatever are the available constituent parts and processes, 
and that the planet has been through these processes before and in fact relatively recently. In the 1960s, the polymath Buckminster Fuller argued that nature never fails. More relevantly for us in Australia and more broadly, Indigenous Australian one new writer, Alexis Wright, last year wrote a prose poem called Hey Ancestor. I'll quote one part of it here. I'm talking about time immemorial experience, how to grow roots like that, not like scrap of paper made yesterday, a second ago, flimsy, impermanent, that type of thing saying you got the title over blackfella country, you are on top. That's nothing, you are not owner. Scrap of paper only painful in the heart, only cover the surface with poison. It can't get inside proper deep lore in my head. Lies type of thing like that fall apart eventually, eroding, unfortunately, like sickly wind vaporing out of any little white fella powerhouse thing called government. That's only tiny, big deal. Paper get blown away. Paper are only good for that. You want to know who's speaking? Me. I got no problem because I am country. I got no paper, just old man talking about a fact. That's all. Elder of country a spirit man who manages law stories from time immemorial living in the back of your mind. That writing published in January last year and in response to Australia Day has become a bit of a key text for me. In Hay Ancestor, Wright inverts, challenges and undermines a whole set of received wisdoms from the notion of the marginalisation of Aboriginal people to the power of humans in the Anthropocene. Another quote. The environmental science people said that the freak storms coming more frequently are a consequence of climate change, but I think that your appearance is the result of those little pieces of paper telling lies about land ownership by people who don't know your power. But you are becoming more enormous and looming right out of control across the land, controlling my mind. The more you push, the more I can't find the answer for what should be kept under control. Are the changes on the planet that we are seeing a demonstration of modern humans' destructive power, or are they a demonstration of the unlimited power of the planet, of country, to absorb, neutralise and respond? The spaces of Allen's Creek, marine, aquatic and terrestrial, are constantly rewilding themselves. Country constantly reasserts itself. These are the unguarded, unmanaged spaces where lives can flourish and decline unobserved by the auditing eyes of power, where futures can be surprising, paradoxical and spontaneous. The black marlin can travel from the open ocean into the steelworks to find new resources for its life. The living midden archives millennia of data about changing climates, extinctions, the presence of new species, the sustainability of ancient harvests, and human and non-human responses. One of the fishers commenting on the marlin said, yeah, but I wouldn't want to eat it. He, here, he refers to presumed levels of toxicity stored in the fish's body from feeding in highly polluted environments. Bioaccumulation of toxins is a well-known issue with large predatory fish like the marlin. But because industrially produced heavy metals have now been present in mining and manufacturing reason, regions for centuries, some species are evolving in response to this change. A recent study in the Australian mining town of Broken Hill showed that an isolated population of introduced house sparrows there had evolved to avoid lead poisoning. They had, devel they had developed a genetic adaptation to avoid the uptake of lead. 
While we don't know about this in marine species, recent studies indicate surprising outcomes. Port Kembla in the 1970s had internationally high levels of heavy metal contamination, leading to scientific prediction that such places would be low in biodiversity and have simplified and impoverished ecosystems. A recent detailed survey of southeast Australian estuaries, including Port Kembla, by a team of marine researchers concluded, however, on the contrary, communities in modified estuaries had greater species cover and were comparable in diversity to those in unmodified estuaries. That paper was called, What Does Impacted Look Like? and suggests we need to question assumptions and received wisdom about the direction of human impacts in estuarine ecosystems. But, like the Midden, Allen's Creek is also an archive of industrial debris. Heavy metals are often stored in bottom sediment, may be unproblematic until they are disturbed, but retaining their potential toxicity. Thinking about the effects of pollutants on our bodies and the bodies of those we eat can remind us of our own animality. Our shared material bodies, the black marlin, humans, the ocean water itself, are composed of the same elements. Each is a rearrangement of the other, and each will be rearranged again as they die and return to the matrix from which the next lives will grow. The evolutionary processes that created the minds and bodies of you and Aboriginal people, the British colonisers and the black marlin are the same. Australian environmental philosopher Val Plumwood's famous story, Being Prey, about being attacked by a saltwater crocodile, reminds us that we can re-enter the food chain in a different place. We can be both predators and prey, not just eaters of species we judge appropriate and killers of species we judge not appropriate. That incident happened deep in an Aboriginal domain and Plumwood argues that because Aboriginal cultural stories often express continuity and fluidity between humans and other life, rather than those things being hard and separate categories, they enable a transcendence of individual deaths to see the continuities of life even as it declines. Part of the opportunity for our learning then is to respect the knowledge of those vernacular in between worlds. Another part is to trust our own embodied intuitive understandings, our effective and emotional response our ancient ways of understanding that lie beneath the more recent cognitive processes and cultural conditioning. Our Western preoccupation with planning, with certainty, is a recent and particular phenomenon. In The Great Derangement, Indian writer Amitav Ghosh argues that this is an outcome of colonialism, with the industrial and scientific revolutions paralleling the colonial expansion of European nations who initiated the practices of capitalist extraction in their colonies. Ghosh argues for acknowledging the limits of human cognition in responding to unknown futures. Climate researcher Mike Hume also reflects this position. We know how the world works, but we no longer know what it means. But note that this is a particular we, Western, modern, maybe still largely white. That is me also, a beneficiary of the ongoing colonial and capitalist processes that are the cause of our planetary and social predicaments of inequality. And because we constantly think we are so important, we ascribe to ourselves very great levels of control and influence that I think is actually an illusion. Which is why I think people like me need to commit to examining the insights from people and other beings not like me. Accepting an open future rather than an expected, controlled and comforting one 
or a predicted anarchic and frightening one realigns us to the more than human. Acknowledging the intelligence, agency and intent of all the more than human in the midst of whom we live can help us here. We can take a lesson from many indigenous cultures and understand that everything and everyone can be a teacher. The black marlin hatched in waters hundreds of kilometres away could not predict the food resources in the steelworks. The saltwater people who made the midden watched the waters rise with no knowledge of if or when they would stop, just as they watched the tide of colonising invaders land inexorably on their shores. But learning from these teachers also requires an ethical relationship. It is not okay to continue our rampant consumption and all that implies while asking to learn from teachers who we systematically work to marginalise in other ways. Embracing humility, listening, slowness might transform our practices of care, of life, through making space for others, helping others endure, moving our dominant Western selves to the edges instead of the centre, becoming less secure, more vulnerable, finding attention rather than fear. Geographer Natalie Osborne at Griffith University recently said, I'm here for radical vulnerability, for attentiveness and care, slow, hard, messy, high stakes. We and our entanglements don't always bounce back. Sometimes when we're dropped, we break. In, in the book Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Iraq invasion and US Army veteran Roy Scranton directly engages with this but argues that the challenges the Anthropocene pose are those with which philosophers have long engaged. How do we make meaningful choices in the shadow of our inevitable end? He answers that we can learn to see each day as the death of what came before, freeing ourselves to deal with what the present offers. In 2012, Aboriginal artist Jonathan Jones created an installation on Cockatoo Island in Sydney Harbour subtitled Shells and Teacups. The installation is an unruly cascade of hundreds of old teacups and oyster shells spilling out of an old building. The two material objects represent meetings, ceremonial and domestic gatherings of, of Aboriginal people in saltwater locations and ceremonial and domestic gatherings of the colonisers, as well as the overlaps, connections and contradictions between them continuing into the present. What Jones calls the ongoing reign of terror of colonisation, including its contemporary manifestations, was and is met with intelligent strength and flexibility by those who were colonised. There are multiple millennia of experience with abundance and precarity on all Australian lands and waters, including right here, and from both humans and non-humans. Let's take that as background for thinking about what we might be able to learn from the black marlin and the 8,000-year-old living midden. These are not clear and concrete answers or solutions. They're indeterminate paths because we inevitably need a tentative itinerary to an obscure destination. First, I think we need to recognise our inescapable precarity and indeterminacy and begin to learn to embrace approaches that support life but recognise its ephemerality. I think we routinely forget our precarious animality, preferring instead our resilient humanity. But we are embodied like the black marlin, like the people whose visceral appetites built those middens. We live and we die. And paradoxically, embracing this knowledge can help us visualise a future that is open and undetermined. 
Disengaging from our obsessively consumer-driven lifestyles might help us find new pathways. Steelworkers made redundant by changing demands and technologies, like other precarious and marginalised people, have no choice but to do this. We can find a pathway to unbecoming that might offer new ways of becoming for ourselves and future generations of all beings. Second, we need to invert the Western command and control approaches to present and and impending planetary unravelling. Following from Native American scholars Soren Larson and Jay Johnson's wonderful book, Being Together in Place, humans should properly be understood as the junior sibling in genealogical relationship to the firstborn status of place, our apical ancestor. This is true both empirically and within ontological framing. Place, oceanic and terrestrial, was first. Humans entered much later and settler colonists even later still. Understanding that junior position requires humility and vulnerability. We can use this vulnerability to open ourselves to place, to let place call call us from that position and consider the networks of relationships within which we live and die, both human and more than human. And third, following from that, we live in a sentient world. We are surrounded by intentional ecologies. But the the trajectories of our dominant belief systems, both religious and secular, mean that mostly we struggle to accept that we are not the only beings with a subject position. There are empirical ways to explore this, but I think it is important to go beyond the merely rational in our understanding. We need the facts, the empirical work, the politics, but they are not enough. We need the creativity and mystery of the margins. We need to engage with the deep mystery and fact of our interconnectedness, what to me is effectively a sacred encounter. We are biologically related to the possibly toxic body of the black marlin in Allen's Creek, as well as the shells and bones in the ancient living midden with their archive record of millennia of extinction and proliferation, decline and abundance. I think we need an embodied relationship with mystery, a way to viscerally as well as cognitively believe in the nets of connectedness that entangle us in the world. Thank you. And then it was time for questions from the audience. Unfortunately, these weren't recorded on the microphone, so I'm paraphrasing them here. The first question was from one of the audience members who remembers stomping around in some of the water enclosures at the steelworks 25 years ago and remembering the smell of kerosene. It's like that's... I mean, I'm sure you remember... Like, when I was in national parks, that was an old joke that green and golden bellfrogs colonised development sites. The, um, the green and golden bellfrog is a threatened species, like, listed on the threatened species um, thing, so it provokes a reaction. But, yes, like, to me, you know, people use the word... Um, I'm not even going to remember it. Like, the, the notion that that is a degraded habitat would, would be the kind of scientific response to that. Green and golden bellfrog doesn't necessarily think that. If it's breeding in that habitat, feeding in that habitat, why is it degraded? It's new, it's different. Just like we respond to changes all the time. And, you know, we... Like, I think it's a... Um, it's an interesting kind of contradiction that at one, at one level, um, in much of our society, we, we search for certainty and constancy, but at the same time, we're tightly wrapped into processes of change all the time. Like, you know, if the new Mac isn't out within 18 months, we're pissed off. But, but we want the world to stay the same around us, our environments to stay the same around us. 
So, yeah. And I think all species do that. And I just think there's lots of lessons from those other species to us. The next question was around the management of our natural environment. Often we seem to manage our natural places for constancy, but we don't seem to manage for change. Yeah, I mean, there's the old, like we're a long way past that now, but for the ecologists here you'll know this, the, um, you know, the standard ecological paradigm was that things were in balance and they would be impacted and then they would move back to that balance and, and you know, we've shifted a long way from that. But the ecologist Frank Egler, who was um, one of the people who um, worked with Rachel Carson on um, Silent Spring, he said in the 70s something like, ecosystems are not only more complex than we think, they may be more complex than we can think, which I think is really interesting. Like our brains don't, can't necessarily encompass the world, but the Enlightenment project and science and rationality tells us that that's the story, that we can understand the world or that the world can be knowable even if not known. And that's kind of, that, that's one of my lessons from Indigenous people, that you, you accept the unknown. You accept that there is a huge amount that you actually don't know anything about and never will. One audience member observed that Michael seemed to be calling for the development of an embodied sense of history. How do we do that? Are people already practising that? And how do people do that day to day to develop that sense of history? Like, I'm happy to hear from other people in that space as well. Like, for me, um, you know, for me, it's part of my learning from Indigenous people that, that there are not always answers, or if there aren't answers, you're not necessarily going to get told them, um, that you need to earn the right to many, many things instead of assume the right, which is what whitefellas do, um, and that... It's the, you know, we work in a space, those of us who work in academia, which, which privileges cognition, privileges our brains, and it's about stepping away from that. The, like, I think, you know, in much of the trajectory of my understanding, um, that's taken me down pathways which are not useful. I think that for our society, that privileging cognition has taken us down pathways which are not useful. So the... You know, the kind of avalanche of responses to um, what's happening on the planet, much of it to me is just saying we need more of the same, but we need way more of it. And I don't reckon that's the answer. I think we need to radically invert that in some way. And the, like one of the lessons to me from Indigenous people is about acceptance of newcomers on country, including whitefellas, but including all the other species and people... Um, people will make judgments that, that's not a uniform acceptance like people will make judgments about those species ability to act appropriately on country so as an example cane toads people aboriginal people will call them rubbish frogs they'll say they don't understand the law they get things wrong all the time they shouldn't be here but other things cats possibly horses possibly donkeys um, belong they've worked out a way they help us we help them They've, they've made a place here. And, you know, I, this is, like, problematic in, for all kinds of approaches in conservation, but, you know, I don't know how many billions we spend on feral animal control, and sometimes that actually has really good outcomes. Um, prickly pear, great, interesting one, but for so many others, it's not going to change. And the... 
uh, and we're also not going to stop the decline of species which are highly specialised, restricted to highly specialised environments. There's only a few of them there to begin with. And I don't know how legitimate it is to count all those losses. In the, we quantify that all the time. I put up graphs here. This percentage of things, this number of species. Australia has the worst record of mammal extinctions in model t modern times. What are we up to? 35, 30. Um, what does that number mean? It means we don't do, we don't care for country very well, but, and th like that number is going to keep on increasing. And I think it's because we're doing what we've always done as whitefellas, in, even in conservation, even with new approaches to conservation. And sorry, this is an incredibly long-winded response. I don't know the answer to that question, um, except that, you know, if we're going to learn from country, we need to, um, we need to prioritise Aboriginal people's voices and we need to earn the right to sit with Aboriginal people to do that and we need to take responsibility for learning from country. And I think if we do that, we can't do that without acknowledging our implication in dispossession and ongoing processes of colonial violence. Like, I can, any one of us can go for a walk in the bush. That's a highly privileged position. That was somebody's country, which people preceding me took away and I am now the beneficiary of. All these national parks, all the council land, Allen's Creek, the coast, the beach, all of that was violently taken away from Aboriginal people and we benefit. So if I go to those places to do those things, I need to acknowledge that as well, not just think, oh, it's lovely at the beach. One member of the audience liked Michael's analogy of sea life and our interconnectedness and relationships to other things, animals and place and asked whether Michael would advocate for a more circular view of life. Yeah, so, like, I completely agree. You know, I think linearity, the whole notion of, you know, lines it's, is, in some respects, and I'm not going to be able to quote Tim Ingold here, who's written bloody books on this, but um, is, a, is a Western invention. You know, the, the colonial enterprise, in conjunction with the scientific enterprise, gridded the world, drew all those lines, the latitudes and the longitudes, all of those things, and... The, the notion of linear time moving in one direction fits all that as well. And certainly my extremely limited understanding from Aboriginal people is not that at all. And, you know, we can, you can critique notions of um, reincarnation, kind of Buddhist or Hindu or whoever's notions of reincarnation, but at a fundamental biological level, it happens all the time. That we get buried, our atoms break down into something else, they grow into something else, da da da, da. It, You know, the, the physical processes reincarnate themselves all the time. The final question was around vulnerability and openness, which could lead to a sense of feeling chaotic and losing a sense of oneself. What guidance would Michael give in terms of keeping that openness but setting limits to vulnerability so that it doesn't become counterproductive? It's a really interesting question. Like, the, um, like, you know, one of the scenarios is a version of the zombie apocalypse. The whole thing comes apart, government collapses, social, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, some critical water breakdowns, whatever. We have a complete breakdown in civil society. There's all kinds of fictionalised versions of that around the place. Um, like, that's a pretty scary scenario. That's, that tips people like us who are normally in control of their lives, control of their lives, into some situation of 
extreme vulnerability, which is very scary. Um, so if you put that if you put that in one end of the spectrum, the I guess what I what I what I found for myself is I don't do stuff very well in social system systems. If I have to rely on people, I find that scary. If I can rely on other things, the bush, the ocean, my skill and my competence in those places, my ability to sleep, to navigate, to eat, I feel much more comfortable. So I, could, I feel like I could be tipped out of my, my um, sort of position of control in an environmental sense and feel all right and learn from that, the unstitching of that, um, all the discomfort and, you know, things there. Like I've just come back, as Leah said, from the Kimberley, which is a landscape I can't really read at all. I don't know those tropical savannas. Um, but I very rapidly felt, and partly because I was hanging out with Aboriginal people, like, and that's a really important element of it, I very rapidly started to feel oriented in that place. The... But, you know, the kind of the... I'm not going to answer this well, but the bigger psychological, philosophical thing that you're talking about, I kind of think we need it. We need the, the unbecoming of that to... It's like that... I use the word liminal, and, you know, liminal space in... The liminal in anthropology is described as that in-between thing where you are no longer what you were before and you are no longer what you are about to become. You're in this unstuck, unmade position in between. It's what happens in um, initiations. It's what's meant to happen in initiations. You take the boy or the girl, you put them in this liminal space where it's extremely scary and painful and you don't know what the hell is going on, and you come out as a woman or a man at the other side of that. And I think that that liminal space is a really important place to explore, to kind of embrace. But maybe it... It's what, you know, I quoted Natalie Osborne saying, sometimes when we're dropped, we break. That was Associate Professor Michael Adams from the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. This episode was recorded live on Thursday the 29th of April 2019 at the Wollongong Art Gallery on the lands of the Dharawal people of the Yuan Nation. There's No Place Like is a production of Access and aims to explore place and our relationship to it. To hear more from the Entanglements live lecture series, subscribe to There's No Place Like wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. You can find more information and the latest research from Access on the website. Just type in both acronyms UOW and Access into your search engine and you'll find the page for the Research Centre. The Twitter handle is at access underscore G-E-O-G. This podcast is produced by me, Jennifer Macy, editing by Lizzie Jack, and thank you to Kevin Brand for the original music. Thanks for joining us.